People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. You're listening to Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trojan introducing you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, my guest is an author, among many other things, as you'll discover, Patricia Schonstein. She's written a book called Throne Among the Bones, which is described as a candid account of Patricia's creative, deeply lived life as a novelist. It's annotated with extracts from her writings, and it's described as a generous memoir which welcomes you behind the scenes into her workshop and costumery. She shows how her own life configures with the scaffolding of her fictions, how characters take up roles both archetypal and simple to tackle existential questions, and how urban landscapes and wilderness serve as the neon-spangled theatres of her storytelling. And in fact, my colleague Beryl Eichenberg writes that extracts from seven of her novels are included. The memoir not only gives us that intimate glimpse, but illustrates how her life experiences have given voice within her novels, which are all in the genre of magic realism. Patricia, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Before I do any more talking, <laughs> I want to welcome you and say, when I got this book the other day to have a look at, I sort of put it down after 20 minutes because I thought, I can't make head or tail of this. What I couldn't work out the structure of it. But it is slightly different, isn't it, as a memoir goes? Yes. I haven't illustrated my life from point A to present. I've done it more as a, as a collection of vignettes of, of essential um, moments of my life. Mm-hmm. So one can dip in it, in it. It's very much a dip-inable book. But what makes it different are the end notes. So yes. extracts from my various novels and also a lot of my poetry, illustrating the real incidents which I reflect in the, the main narrative. Why did you do that as a matter of interest, that, that end note thing? I mean, I've discovered that it's quite a brilliant idea because you almost have two books. You have your narrative as the book, and then you can read through about 100 or more yes. extracts from your books. I think it started for myself as an exercise reflecting on my own work. And then I realized readers would be quite fascinated by this mirroring. So if I had an incident in my life which was, say, painful or difficult to deal with, as an author, I could take that incident, give it to characters, give it to fictitious people, Ah, and rework it, redo it, revisit it, perhaps with some healing or reinterpretation. So, yeah, I create a kind of equipoise between the real life and the fictitious work that came from that life. It really works in a curious sort of way because at first I actually wasn't going to look at the end notes, but they annotated them. The numbers are all there, whoever yes, to yes, do all that. Yes. And when the number is mentioned and you go and read that paragraph, it's suddenly, it's this mirror thing that you so accurately describe. It suddenly puts things into perspective, mm. but on a different kind of plane. Is that sort of the right way of looking at it? Yes, I would th- say, say so, yes. A different plane. But there's poetry as well. You started the book and ended the book with two quite potent poems. And um, I'm going to take the liberty of asking you to read one now, which is the one that opens the book, and one at the end of our show when we close off our show. Are you prepared to do this for us? Yes, let's do that. So the opening poem is called I Go Back to 1949. 
I go back to 1949. I see them board the ship, clutching two suitcases and my baby brother. I see my mother with her copies of Petrarch and Giacomo Leopardi, with her knitting patterns and great winter coat. I see my father with his documents and two photographs, all that were snatched from Holocaust flames. I watch them sail down the east coast and reach Byra, where it is all heat and where the dock workers' songs are sad. I should say, go back to the frescoes and stucco, go back to the floating golden city and the bridge of sighs. But I must be born on Savannah. I must be born among Musasa and Muhobohobo. I must know the resurrection of dry grass after rain. Even though they will each die lonely deaths among strangers, with nothing, having lost Petrach and Leopardi, I will let them board the train and go ahead into the interior, for I must be born to the sound of Umbira and know the weeping of diaspora. That's a very thought-provoking and I think moving poem. Who is the I? Is that you or your parents? It's myself, looking back at them as the young people they were, mm -hmm. leaving a Europe after World War II, a pretty ravaged Europe where the ovens of the Holocaust still held hot cinders, a couple looking for new life, new hope, and coming to Africa about which they knew nothing. I was going I, to say, why did they come to Africa? I think circumstance brought them. My father was a Czechoslovakian, and he escaped Czechoslovakia before the Nazi invasion. He went to British-mandated Palestine and spent the war years there. After the war, he tried to make his way back home and somehow ended up in Italy, where he met my mother's family and my mum, and where they married. He didn't get back home at all. In Palestine, he met a British soldier. He befriended a British soldier. He, of course, had become fluent in English by that stage, and this fellow helped him procure a job in, in Rhodesia. So they came out to opportunity, basically. Oh, yes, okay. To, okay. to a chance. But your mother was Czechoslovakian. No, no, my mum was Italian. Oh, your mum was Italian? Yes. Why am I thinking of Czechoslovakia? My dad was Italian. Oh, you're Czechoslovakian. Right, right, okay. And he was a Jew? A Jew, and my mum was Catholic. Right. So to marry him, she converted mm -hmm. to Judaism. Okay, now. You've chosen some interesting music here, and I'm sure there's a reason everyone will know the pieces you've chosen and love them. For example, The Moldau by Smetana, with that lovely theme. Why have you chosen this? So this is the first piece of music I associated ever with my father. If I hear it today, it still brings tears to my heart. It's, it's very much my father's music. It contains, for me, the pathos of his leaving home, the pathos of his loss, losing his family to genocide, the loneliness that perhaps rivers feel when they, when they cut a course through the land. Um, yeah, my father's music.
That's part of the tone poem, The Moldau, by Smetana. It's a much longer work at about 12 or 13 minutes, but that's the main theme that everyone associates with that work. And it's the first choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Patricia Schonstein, whose book Thrown Among the Bones, A Life in Fiction, is a kind of memoir of her extraordinary life. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you, we mentioned just before the music, your Catholic Jewish background, and that's been a kind of feature in your life, hasn't it? Sometimes the tension, sometimes the joy of the two religions. Yes, there are two religions that really fed my unconscious and fed my database, which I would draw on later as an author. I think Catholicism predisposed me to being a writer of magic realism because of its magic. It's a, it's a very miraculous religion. There are devils and angels and archangels and miracles on every corner, the mere turning five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed a multitude. These struck me very deeply as a child, and plus having all the saints and archetypal figures accompanying me. Judaism was much calmer than Catholicism in my, my experience as a child, and the two together certainly fed me greatly with imagery, archetypes, and the belief structure. But what, what they also did for me was bring up the question which has remained with me through my life, dealing with good and evil. I've questioned this often. Which is the stronger, evil or good? Why does it appear to us that evil is the stronger when even right now in these very present times when it's still possible to invade a country and bomb it to pieces? Why is this still happening? Why is evil manifesting in such a way? And why can good never overcome such action? So these are questions I constantly ask. Catholicism attempted to answer. If one looked at St. George, he appears to overcome evil by the dragon, killing yeah. the dragon. Yeah. But St. Michael holds it in equipoise. St. Michael merely places his foot on the dragon, and you get a sense of good and evil being balanced. Um, but I'm not sure. I still haven't reached a conclusion yet. Still, to me, I worry that good remains diaphanous and soft and the piece of silk and the spider threading, whereas evil can still interpret itself through tanks and bombs and genocides. Patricia, I want you to read another uh, short piece from your book um, to do with exactly that, where you speak about war and you speak about what is required of someone in war. And I'd like you to read it. It's called The Management of Evil in your chapter called The Management of Evil. Will you just read that perhaps warfare is a vital behavior? Perhaps warfare is a vital behavior. Magma and lava like at our core Perhaps this is why we employ our greatest minds, our most skilled inventors and engineers, most brilliant choreographers and strategists, most daring visionaries, most persuasive orators. War seems always to require our best, while paradoxically delivering our worst. That, when I read that, I had to stop <laughs> and pause and think, because yes. it is so true and in the chapter, The Management of Evil, and with this war in Ukraine, all these things are to the forefront, aren't we? And it's, the, it's humans, mm. human beings' most um, sophisticated mm. engines that are being used, minds and physical. Yes. Related to that, could I just mention, so yes. my father, of course, having escaped the Holocaust, and my mother having been 
quite disturbed, carried scars all her life by the by Italian fascism and the German occupation of Italy. In our home, they had baggage. They brought baggage with them. In a real sense, two suitcases from their life in Europe, but in a metaphorical sense, baggage of unresolved matter to do with war and to do with genocide. Um, they never opened those suitcases. They never spoke about their experiences. And as children, you don't know what questions to ask, but you know something's wrong because those suitcases are made of organic matter. Some type of osmosis happens. They're locked, but something oozes out of them. And it has to do with sorrow, with pathos, with loss, with confusion, and with death. Death by unnatural cause, death by war, death by genocide. So that also, the, the, the battle I had to understand good and evil, plus management of what these unopened suitcases put in my life, again, predisposed me to all the questions which I tackle through the fictions. And not being a political person and not being able to manage nonfiction, I can only address these matters through fiction, where I can employ characters to pick up my debate, to pick up my questions, and to then give them to readers, to take them out into the world. In the way I can't stand on a platform and directly say to Putin, you can't do this, but I can do it through a poem. I can do it through a fictitious character. I can do it through a novel. So as an author, if I were to define myself, what is your, what's your mission as an author? Well, certainly to give pleasure to people through the fictions, but also to present them with the big questions which have bothered me through life and which actually should be bothering humanity as a whole. Because apparently loss and displacement are major themes of your novels. Yes, loss, displacement, but also, although they deal with dark matter, there's redemption in all of them, and there's certainly hope. There's really lots and lots of hope, lots of beauty, and lots of fine living. They're all full of good food, costumes, good dressing, lovely characters, and hope. A lot of hope in them, because I'm hopeful. I, I, although I deal in dark matter, I'm a person of great hope and great joy. I wake up every day and gasp. I'm alive really, and I'm, really. I'm filled with joy. My first breath of the day is always one of joy and awe. That's interesting because you've been through so much, uh, being displaced from a country, coming to South Africa, all the things that have happened mm. to you, mm. watching your mother die, for example, mm. which was a, uh, another very, very moving part of the book, and what you did with the ashes, and your brother as well. So loss, displacement, light and darkness, as you say, ethics, intolerance, war, genocide, are the ponderables in your novels, but informed, as you've been telling us, by your own experience. Mm. So let's have a piece of music, and you've chosen The Humoresque by Dvorak. I want you to tell me why you've chosen this. Again, it's from my father. My father had a number of records, those old vinyls, mm. and at a certain point in our family, in our time, he stopped playing them. I don't know why, but um, Humoresque was one of them. So when, again, when I hear that, my heart also cries because it's his music once more.
And that was The Humoresque by Dvorak. Another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, the author Patricia Schonstein, whose book Throne Among the Bones is subtitled My Life in Fiction. It's a sort of a memoir, a sort of a autobiography, is it? Am I saying the right things? Yes, yes, yeah. Sort of a memoir. Yeah, memoir. And what the other thing I wanted to mention, you've divided it into, well, three parts really. Part one, magical realism. Depicting Rhodesia, and then in South Africa, gritty realism, mm. and then at the back is that third section we spoke about. But I want to know what magic realism is all about because I just can't quite get my head around it. I know you spoke about the Catholic religion having magical element to it, but what do you mean by the genre of magical realism? So, as a literary genre, in magic realism, one presents a story, a narrative in a world which is absolutely real. So, for instance, in A Time of Angels, I would be describing Long Street in a way that you could walk down Long Street and it would resonate. But I would introduce a magical component in an angel, for instance, presenting itself and interacting with the characters. So um, the reality you present is real, but then this wonderful magical component comes in and we have then a genre called magical realism. And when I describe my young years of growing up in what was Rhodesia, it was a very magical time, not only through the influence of the religions I was exposed to, but also in the landscape, the environment, the natural world was extremely magical, very rich and virgin. Although there were farms, vast farms, there were vast areas which had never been chopped or touched or raised by the human hand. In fact, where I lived with my mum, a 10-minute walk took me down into extraordinary grassland where, mm. where the nations, and I'll speak of insect nations and bird nations, grass nations, were, were still intact. Mm. And that, that imbued me with a great sense of the magic of the earth, of trees and... You said um, you, there's a lovely description when you get to your new house in Rhodesia and you run out onto the uh, veranda, the stoop that goes mm. around the house and how you look out and see the grass in the distance and you go running and your mother calls you back and you took no notice. So, And you were young at that stage, presumably. Yes. So it, that was my absolute first memory of running towards this grass that was yellow and gold mm. and exquisite, just charging out on my newly confident little legs and my mom shouting, stop, come back, and <laughs> defying that. But that, that sense of, of, of panorama, of grassland, of savanna, I think was my first marking to be alert to the natural world. So if we are reading one of your books that you refer to here in, shall we call it, part three of this memoir, where you quote from the various books, we will be aware of this magic realism. Will we? There will be an angel or a yes. or some sort of supernatural presence or figure. Yes, you'll be very much aware of it. Yeah. Has it ever been criticised or has it been well, complimented? You, you know, not everyone likes magical realism. It is a particular genre. Mm -hmm. If you enjoy that, then then you're fine with my works. Apparently, you started writing fairly late. I mean, because of your incredible experience, it seems amazing that you didn't write when you were running looking at the grass on the veranda mm -hmm. that day? Well, I've always been gifted with a skill of writing, but it was encouraged through my primary school. The school I went to was really a really good school, and we all we were encouraged to read, we were read to, we were encouraged to write. We had to write a composition 
once a week at one stage. So our imaginations were sparked up right mm. from the word go. And as a teenager, I wrote poetry. I've always read. I began writing in earnest, yes, late, when I ran a little school and needed work for children. So my first um, published work was actually work for children. And my first novel came about because I wrote an, a story for teenagers and entered it in a competition and was cautioned by one of the judges not to leave it as a teenage novel, but to rewrite it for adults, which I did. took a year, and that became my first published novel as Skyline. And I'd never imagined I'd be a, a novelist, but that empowered me. And then I went to university and, and did a at UCT and did the Creative Writing Masters and wrote A Time of Angels and was further empowered and, in fact, didn't look back from But that. you also had the, well, I don't know, I presume it was a huge advantage to work with a famous J.M. Kutsir. Yes, I was very fortunate to have him as my supervisor. <laughs> so now here's an interesting point. He doesn't like magical realism, and he did say so to me, but uh, I understood the measure of his mentorship in that he didn't stop me. He allowed me to enter the genre that I wanted to and and supervised it. Which is the sign of a good mentor, isn't it? Absolutely. To give you the freedom to Absolutely. go on your route. Absolutely. He was really wonderful to work with. And then from so also writing for children, I was going to say when you spoke about writing for children, that you almost imagine requires a fairy tale magic realism aspect. Yes. Which you obviously had from an early age. Yes. You can cut your teeth on magic writing for children. Mm -hmm. But there's the harsh reality of life as well. I mean, how would you describe your relationship with your parents and brother? Um, and I know there's a story about your father and genocide, all, all slightly darker stuff, isn't it? It's, it's all stuff filled with mourning. If, when I think of my father's deep self, it's one of mourning. Mm -hmm. He never really recovered from his parents' death in the Holocaust particularly his mother. His mum was transported through Theresienstadt, and after the war he established that she had died in Bergen-Belsen. It haunted him that he'd never buried her, he'd never said goodbye properly. Mm. But the interesting thing about my father, I once saw an advert on television, and it was, you see a father and a son fishing, trout fishing, and the advert was on the line of, what have you learned from your father? And in this case, it was which brandy to drink, mm -hmm. some trade of brandy. <laughs> but it made me think, what have I learned from my father? Mm -hmm. And what I came away with was my father showed me to forgive genocide. And he did it by osmosis. He didn't tell me in words. But I absorbed from him genocide is probably one of our darkest, most brutal, unforgivable acts as a human species but he forgave his experience of it. Gosh. And that was the lesson I took away. And you are able to do the same thing? Yes, one has to forgive. I think the situation humanity is in nowadays, you have to forgive, otherwise there's always revenge. Mm. Um, we've got to get over revenge, otherwise it just continues this dreadful cycle that we are in. From my mum, I learned compassion. My mum alerted me to the people on the pavement, the poor people, the hungry people, the people without shoes, the people in rags, the cripples. From a very, very early age, she made me aware of them. Like, for instance, a simple lesson, don't eat out. If you're on the street, 
don't eat because there's somebody hungry who will see you eating. So eat at home or eat inside, but don't don't eat publicly if you're not able to share your your, your five your five loaves and your two fish. Uh, if you can't feed them, uh, then eat inside. I know. loved your story. You were on an airplane, I think, and they were giving out biscuits. Yes. And there was a poor man who'd run out of money, and you said they must give him all biscuits. Yes. That obviously you learned from your mother it as well. Also from my mum. Take heed of who is hungry and who is in need. There's a triumphal feel coming up now because your next piece is the the trumpet tune of the triumphal march from Act Two of Giuseppe Verdi's opera Aida. Is there a reason you've chosen this? Yes, I would choose this for my mum, I think. So oh, right, okay. also in our early years when my parents were still playing their vinyl records, the house was full of all these passions of opera, beautiful music. Verdi played he was played often. And that triumphal march, my mom told me when her father marched in the First World War, he marched to that. Da, 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 da. So that touched me also, What to walk into war with that sense of triumph, but not really knowing as a young man what lies ahead. But I'm not going to let you get away with this now. You told me before we came to the studio that you wrote children's words to, to that. that. Are you yes. gonna, would you, would you I'll share I'll give you the us? first line. Yes, I wrote new words for it. We are children of the earth and we march for peace, etc. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to hear now, played by the trumpets that Verdi especially had made for this opera, Aida, the, the middle section, the march of the triumphal march by Verdi. Grand March, it's called, from the opera Aida by Giuseppe Verdi, the trumpet theme there, and a choice of my guest, Patricia Schoenstein, whose book, Throne Among the Bones, is a memoir that we are discussing. One of the things, apparently, that was quite important in your life, since we're talking about your mother, and that march was reminding you of your mother, 
was that Kariba held a very special fascination for you. Apparently your mother worked there at Kariba when they were building it. Yes, so the people who built Kariba Dam were an Italian consortium. Um, and she worked for them, bringing home these extraordinary stories to us. So as children, we had a sense of vicariously being involved in building the dam. She brought home stories of the Batonka people who lived in the Zambezi Valley and lived there for hundreds of years, untroubled. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, they had to move because the area became flooded once the dam was in place. So she brought home, again, in, co in compassionate terms, like people who've they're going to leave their graves their culture their history their superstitions their beliefs all going to be drowned by the rising waters and it just paralleled their loss of everything paralleled with my father's loss of his everything through the holocaust oh, gosh, yes. and also paralleled with their loss of innocence mm. so there was just this great sense of human loss so no, no matter how you prayed no matter what you believed in when destiny and we put it in inverted commas arrives and it's your time to be moved off the landscape you will be moved off the landscape. Yeah. Mm. Did you enjoy your time in Rhodesia? My life growing up was wonderful, full of family sorrow because my family was quite dysfunctional and full of challenges all the time. But mm. at base, it was wonderful. It enriched me and fed me and filled my database. And I look back mostly at landscape, mostly at that the Milky Way and the sky and the grass and that the wonder of nature. Do you miss it at all, I mean, after what has happened to it? I miss it with great sorrow. I'm so sad that it has become such a destitute, poor mm -hmm. place where, where the people just do not matter to those who run the show. It's of great sadness. There is a curious kind of um, similarity between Rhodesia, I suppose, in the 60s with South Africa, because one of your chapters here, you talk about the Kaya that the black servants used to have to live in outside the house. Small windows, dark interiors, curtains suspended on sagging wire held by two nails. Newspapers or flattened cardboard boxes covered the bare concrete floors. A woven grass mat, beds raised from the floor because of the tokolosh. And the crude uh, toiletry and electric no electricity. It was, mm -hmm. in retrospect, when you read through this, it reminded me exactly of my home in the 50s and 60s and you realize and then there were the the enamel plates and mugs as well yes yes very dehumanizing dehumanizing, very was the dehumanizing word, and that happened there yeah. mm. so the book has covers your book covers all sorts of things wars um, holocaust genocide rhodesia south africa but um you obviously all through your life have had a vivid imagination as I said, when you were running down around the stoop in <laughs> Rhodesia. And that has continued to this day, hasn't it, as is obvious in this book? Yes, I have a very great imagination, internal imagination, but I also am very observant of life. From a very early age, I, I just observed and absorbed people and mannerisms and behaviors and beauties and the opposites of beauty. So I've been very fortunate in that. So life, life often, if I think, if I sit still, it's like, it's like a gallery for me, like an art gallery. 
with or movie gallery. There's yeah. always these exquisite yeah. things going on, whether they're dark or light or harsh or beautiful. There's just this stuff, this ongoing pantomime. Let me use that word. Okay, that's it's a good a pantomime word. Pantomime of life. But I also saw somewhere that embroidery is very important in your life and in your work. Now, how does that come in? Yes. How does that come in? So I, I attended a convent for a number of years as a, as a teenager, pre and teenager. Um, and there, although my academic education was excellent, I can't fault it, the skill I really look back on is the skill of embroidery under Sister Mary Graziana. She taught me cross-stitch, and one particular cross-stitch is called Assisi embroidery, where you, where the cross-stitching forms the background and the blank spaces are, create the image. But you have to always create a border because it's very symmetrical work. So you'll create the border and then work in towards the center. And if you go wrong, if you miscount your stitching, you throw the whole image out. And I've used this technique in the writing of my books. So when I begin a fiction, I'll write the beginning, chapter, and the end, the, the opening and the closing. And I create a sort of frame, very much like an embroidery. And then I work inside, from wow. corner to corner, and I feel very safe <laughs> in there. Um, there's no doubt that the fiction won't work, that it won't conclude properly because I've already assessed the conclusion. And there's never writer's block because if this corner is giving a little challenge, I just move to another corner and work there, oh, come back to this one. So that template of a CC embroidery, which the nun gave me, is my template for writing a book. That is the most amazing thing to... I don't think I've ever heard that before. Does anyone else do that? <laughs> Not that I know of. No. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> Let's have a Chopin Nocturne. You've chosen a Chopin Nocturne, uh, Patricia. And why have you chosen this? This is one of the famous nocturnes. It's a famous nocturne, and I associate it with my son. This now I'm playing for my son. And what does your son do? My son is an artist, and he, he makes the most beautiful sculptures, and his day job is book design and information graphics. Okay.
one of the really popular nocturnes by Chopin, Opus 9, Number 2, and another choice of my guest, Patricia Schoenstein, with whom I'm having a fascinating conversation about her latest book, Thrown Among the Bones, My Life in Fiction. That's also almost odd, My Life in Fiction. But you've explained, haven't you, Patricia, how you use magic realism to bring your life into fiction. Correct. With yes. angels yes. and all yes. sorts of things like yes. that. But if I were to describe this book to someone, how would you describe, is there sort of a thread running through it, through its three sections? Because now we've decided to call the end bits a section. Yes, yes, I would say there's a thread running through. I would say it is my personal quest in this life which is full of questions for ethical light. Now, ethical light has been a big theme of yours, in, including in this discussion. And what do you mean by ethical light? The light which guides us toward good. The, the light which guides us toward compassion and non-war and non-conflict. The light which makes us think twice before we run to evil. A person reading this book, would they be aware of your ethical light fascination? Most certainly. They'd pick that up. As they right read from through the narrative. Very early, they'd pick it up. Right, right, right. What sort of response have you had from it? Because it is, as I keep saying, an unusual memoir, but it's completely fascinating. Well, it's just recently published, and thus far I've had very good response. A number of people have emailed me and messaged me. So, so it's looking good. Looking good. Well, I'm going to ask you, as I said at the beginning, you finish with a poem, as you opened with a poem. And this poem has the interesting title of the Last Will and Testament, um, and I'd like you to read that to us to end our interview, Patricia, and also before we play the last piece of music. So will you read it to us? So with this poem, one bears in mind what one leaves behind after one dies. And of course, the material goods are one thing, but I had to look at what do I really intrinsically leave. So when I read the poem now, I read it as myself to my children, but I want it to be heard as what everyone perhaps should leave to the greater human good, the greater picture. To my children and my children's children, light for you and the sparkle of mica, the reflection of moon in mica, not to keep but to marvel at, the pink of quartz for you, that too, and the green of copper to remind of all that is hidden, love for you, Love that soars in archangelic wings through and above what is brutal and cruel in this life. All my other things, the tea sets and paintings, the books, bracelets and embroideries, the shona pots, yes, all those too. But above all else, I leave you light, mica and light for you and your fellow travellers. That is the end poem of Patricia's book, Thrown Among the Bones. And I think you're leaving us with light, I have to say, here on Fine Music Radio. Light is very evident, so thank you for that and thank you for sharing. And you've chosen a perfect piece of music to end after that poem, which is the Allegretto, the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Is there a story here or is it just beautiful? It's my daughter's music. When I hear it, my daughter's in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> what does your daughter do? My daughter runs an amazing soccer academy called Badger's Soccer Academy where she coaches young girls to play soccer. 
Gosh, and empowers you. them. And your husband is Don Pinnock, the well-known yes. journalist. Yes, yes, who's uh, environmental journalist at the moment, investigative journalist. Right, okay. Patricia, it's been fascinating talking to you, fascinating to get to know your book, and fascinating to get to know you. Thank you for reading your excerpts, and um, we'll end with Beethoven. Thank you, Rodney.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR 101.3